What is up, all of my beautiful freaking people? Welcome back to another episode of FML Talk. Today is a wildly intense episode and so freaking powerful. This guest is known around the world, and the case that she was involved in is one of the most highly publicized cases of all time. So sit back, grab a drink, because Amanda fucking Knox is joining us on FML Talk. Oh my god. Wait, how old was the other girl? 19. Can you believe that shit? Hey, this is Gabrielle Stone. Good book. <gasps> he did what? 48 hours? What a dick. Yeah, but have you seen all the photos on her Instagram? And this is FML Talk. Oh no, she didn't. Okay, you guys, we're going to dive in. In case you need a reminder of the case that shook the world in 2007, Amanda Knox was a normal college kid who went to go study abroad in Italy. And what ended up happening to her over the next several years was something out of a fucking horror story. If you aren't familiar with the Amanda Knox case, I'm going to give you a brief overview on what it entailed. However, I really do recommend that you watch the Netflix documentary. It's called Amanda Knox, and it gives you a really comprehensive and detailed look at what happened throughout this case, and it's freaking insane to see the details of how everything played out. And one of the most impactful lines I thought in that documentary is when Amanda's sitting, being interviewed, and she says either I am a sociopath in sheep's clothing or I'm you. While you're listening to this interview, I want you to really remember that what happened to Amanda could have happened to me, could have happened to you, could have happened to anyone, and that is absolutely terrifying. In November of 2007, British student Meredith Kircher's body was discovered in the apartment she shared with Amanda in Perugia, Italy, while they were studying abroad. Amanda was not home at the time. She was with her Italian boyfriend, and a couple days later, the Italian police began to question her. She's taken in and questioned by the Italian police for hours and hours in a language she isn't fully fluent in, and they eventually arrest her and her boyfriend for the murder of Meredith Kircher. The ups and downs that happened after her initial arrest are absolutely wild. How the media started to spin things, how they slut-shamed her, invading her privacy from jail, and being locked up in an Italian prison for a total of four years. Just from watching the documentary, you can see that all of the evidence they had against her was circumstantial, made up by the police and journalists, and really manufactured to create this crazy story that really had nothing to do with Amanda. The police wanted to believe that her and her boyfriend had this crazy dominatrix sex relationship and that it was some wild threesome gone wrong and then they killed her. Like the stories that they were trying to prove were insane. The media then started to paint her as this 
vixen and this sex-obsessed woman when she had only slept with seven people. I mean, can you imagine, like, if this happened to me, what my list would have done in the media? Holy fucking shit. It was really crazy. After spending some time in the Italian prison, her court case finally came up and the trial happened, which was wildly publicized all over the world. And she was found guilty, having to go back to that cell, spending some time in solitary, and then her lawyers had to appeal the case. When the appeal was finally heard in court, she was then found innocent and all the charges were dropped. She was then able to finally come back to the U.S. When I first asked Amanda if she would be willing to come on FML Talk to share her story, I wanted to make sure we weren't going to bring you every other interview that she's already done. Most of the time when she appears as a guest, she's asked to walk everyone through the case and give her perspective of it step by step. But if you watch the documentary or you listen to her podcast, all of the information is readily available and has been told time and time again. So for this interview today, I wanted to really focus on her mental health and how it's been affected from what she's gone through, what it was like dealing with such a specific type of trauma, and really how she was able to not only make it through, but carry on and truly thrive. This interview is shocking fascinating, but above all, it's fucking inspiring. I can't wait for you to get to know Amanda, not the girl from the media, not the woman who lived through the scandal, but the human who was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Let's get into it. Amanda Knox, welcome to FML Talk. I am so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I, I can't wait. I was so excited when you agreed to do this because your story is so unique, so intense, and I don't think that people often enough realize the long-stemming, you know, kind of mental health journey that going through what you went through has taken you on. And I'm really excited to kind of dive into that aspect of it with you today. Yeah, I'm I'm eager too because this is something that I've been thinking a lot about also just recently in my own life because you're right the particular experience that I went to was not everybody's traumatic experience it's um pretty unique it happens more often than you would like to think but people who have been wrongly convicted are a little bit few and far between it's not like friends where we're all in the same right. apartment together and we like we shared the same trauma you know like it's taken right. a lot of twists and turns to find connections with people and to make meaning out of it that is not just personal but has a bigger scope so super interested to talk about all of that yeah definitely so in the the intro i gave kind of an overview and a timeline of what really happened in the case but take me back to november 2nd 2007 when you get to that day every year does that still bring up any emotions for you absolutely it's the day that i could have died right yeah that's the day that I came home from, I, I had met this really sweet guy five days before and was hanging out with him at his apartment. And if I hadn't met him really like totally randomly five days before, I would have been home the night and I would have been very likely raped and killed too. So it's, 
it's this really bizarre moment for me of feeling both incredibly unlucky and incredibly lucky. Yeah, it's almost like the universe threw you a bone and was like, okay, we're going to not have her be at home during this horrible situation. But also that caused you to lose all these years of your life with what took place because you weren't home. Yep. Yeah. It's a wild thing to kind of like (laughs) wrap your head around. And that must be a terrifying thing to experience to know that if you would have been home, like you could have lost your life. And to be in such a situation that we all kind of dream of going through as far as going to Italy, being abroad, meeting a guy, like having this like new romance that's brewing. So it's like this this weird high that you're on and then all of a sudden this horrible thing happens to you. Yeah. And have you ever been to Italy? Just curious. I have. Oh my yes. God. So for people, your listeners and you who have been to Italy, you know what we're we're talking about. For those who have never been to Italy, it is an astonishingly beautiful place. It yeah. is just freakishly beautiful and pastoral. And so it has like this this old world, you know, gravitas to it, but at the same time it's just so vibrant and alive and the and the culture is so potent and and interesting. It's a beautiful beautiful place and the weeks leading up to this horrific tragedy were some of the best weeks of my life. Truly. Yeah. Oh my god, that's so tough. And like the the romance that just exists in Italy, you know, like you can feel it in the streets. There's this vibrancy of like newness and and just excitement when you get there. So I can't imagine what that would have been like to build up to getting to do this, you know, semester abroad and have this new amazing experience and then not only to have it cut short but in such a horrific way that soon turned into something that you were going to have to deal with for many many years in your life. Yeah, it was the worst possible thing that could happen and it was also because of that the most unimaginable thing that i could like literally going and getting ready for this experience and having to sit down with my parents to talk about like okay let's talk through through some quote worst case scenarios like what happens if you lose your passport what happens if you need to go to the doctor like do you does your health insurance work like how are you going to get on the internet because back then it wasn't like everyone had the internet in their pocket so it was the last thing that I, you know, we just didn't even think to discuss like what, what if someone breaks into your home and rapes and murders your roommate? Like that was beyond my imagination of a possible thing that could happen. But then of course, you know, these horrible things do happen. And Meredith, who was a real person who had real life and real dreams became a statistic. She became one of those young women who were just minding their own business, living their own life, and was objectified and destroyed. And that happened. That's like worst case scenario. And then to have the justice system swoop in and create such a mess of the entire thing was number two worst case scenario. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great way of putting it too, because you're right. I do think that the media frenzy that ensued, which we'll get into a little later, and you know, the publicity of this whole case really overshadowed that this beautiful young woman lost her life. And it was so sad to 
not be able to to really like honor her because of the the insanity that was swept over the case. Yeah, absolutely. The way that this case became a sort of pervasive mystery, did she or didn't she? Like it didn't just stick to the facts. Like if we right. stuck to the facts, we could have acknowledged what happened to Meredith, done what we needed to do to address that issue and attempt to honor her memory. And it was all washed away in into what became just this slanderous speculation circus that went on for over a decade. Summer is here and life is not slowing down for us anytime soon. One of the things we have continuously relied on making our lives so much easier is factor meals. No prep, no mess, no cleanup meals. I have really been off the wagon with my eating since having my son, and for my health, my wellness, and my mental sanity, I have been switching my dinners to more healthy options from Factor. They have 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, so I never get bored. And Tay is continuously shocked every time he sits down to eat one because they are so freaking tasty. They have breakfast, lunches, dinners, and desserts. It's a treat to have restaurant-quality food that is so easy to prepare and doesn't come with the insane Postmates bill. Head to factormeals.com slash FMLtalk50 and use code FMLtalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code FMLtalk50 at factormeals.com slash FMLtalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Enjoy, FMLers. So in the documentary that came out, which I thought was very well done, you say when you're being questioned in the interrogation room that stuff started to become unclear. Can you explain what it's like when you're in that interrogation scenario and what it feels like and what's happening to make you feel like you start to question things? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, I'm really glad you you brought this up because I think it's one of the mental health experiences of of not just my experience, but also wrongful convictions in general that a lot of people don't quite intuitively understand. But ultimately, like I feel like we've all at some point in our lives been lied to by people we trusted and we've been gaslit. And I walked into a police office, you know, after my friend had suddenly and inexplicably been murdered. And I was questioned for 53 hours over five days in Italian without an attorney. And the entire time that I was being questioned, I was never told that I was a suspect. I was never told that they were suspecting me or or questioning me as somebody who they thought could be involved. Instead, what they told me was that I was a very important witness, that I was somebody who was very close to Meredith. I had come home and discovered the crime scene. I was the one who called the cops. So clearly, I was very important to the investigation. They repeated this to me over and over again. And one of the things that they told me in that time period was any little thing 
that you think is insignificant could make or break this case. It could be the mm. key to solving who who did this crime. And I may, it made me feel like they were depending on me to solve the crime for them, to like remember, you know, someone saying something off color to Meredith one time or someone who like walked by the house sometime on my way. Like it was that level of, just something insignificant that could have happened just in passing that would explain everything. And when I was unable to provide some insignificant, seemingly insignificant piece of information, I kept trying and trying to think like, who could have done this? Who, who has ever come close to us and, and seemed threatening in a way I failed to come up with something because again, like the weeks leading up to this horrific event were some of the best weeks of my life. Everyone that I met was nice. We had, we had friendly experience. I mean, there was one sort of off color moment that I had with someone who offered me a ride home once and then didn't take me home. And I had to like argue with him to bring me home. But like, other than that, there was nothing like truly nothing. Meredith had lots of friends no one had ever said anything weird or mean to us. We, it's just, it was beyond me who could have done this. And as I was sitting there answering these questions over and over and over again, I noticed that the police, the detectives were getting frustrated with me, but I didn't know why. I thought that maybe they were under a lot of pressure. It was already very clear that this was a big media case. There were already, you know, journalists swarming the town and taking pictures of everybody and trying to talk to everybody. And it was so it was very overwhelming and and the whole town was talking about it. And so here I was suddenly at the center of this like big deal where people are saying, you're so important to figuring this out. And I felt helpless and and clueless. And I'm 20 years old and I'm trying to explain in a language that I can't speak very well. Like, I don't know who did this. And they would get frustrated. And ultimately, what ended up happening is the final night that I was interrogated, I wasn't even actually called in. My boyfriend of five days, Raffaele, was right. called in at like 10 p.m. at night. And we were like getting ready to go to bed. Like I was staying with him in the meantime because my house had been turned into a crime scene. I didn't have access to any of my clothes. My whole world was turned upside down. So I was staying with Raffaele and at 10 p.m. they call us and they're like, or they call him and they say, we need you to come in to follow up on some questions, which was odd because like he didn't know Meredith. He, he right. you know, like he didn't know the house very well, but okay, sure. He went in and because I was afraid to be home alone, I went with him and I was going to just do my homework in the waiting room while he was like being questioned, answering whatever they needed to do. We thought it would be a really quick thing. Well, as I was sitting there trying to do my homework, somebody comes out, says, what are you doing here? I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I'm, I'm here with Raffaele. And they say, well, if you're here, you might as well answer questions. So come into the office with me. And I'm like, oh, God, I've been answering questions like nonstop. Okay. So I go in. And over the course of several hours, they progressively became more and more aggressive with me. They told me that like, I wasn't telling the truth about what I remembered. They very specifically said, either you 
don't actually remember what really happened or you're lying to us because we know that you know more than you're telling us. And I didn't. I didn't know more. I, I was baffled that they were so upset with me and that, and that they were accusing me of lying. And I knew that I wasn't lying. So I started to accommodate the other option, which was maybe I didn't remember everything. There was a police officer who was there sitting next to me telling me about how she had once been in this horrible car accident and that she didn't remember anything. She was just driving in her car. And then the next thing she knew, she woke up in the hospital And she was like, you know what, Amanda, here's what I think happened. I think you witnessed something so terrible, you can't even remember it. But here's the thing. If you don't remember it right now, you're going to go to prison for 30 years. I mean, come on. Yeah. A lot of people think that the worst part of this whole experience was like the day I received the guilty verdict. It was not. It was that day that I was interrogated and I was made to feel like... I was crazy. Yeah. And I mean, they were gaslighting you. I can still see it, the effects of it on your face when you're talking and sharing the story right now. And this was years and years and years ago. So I can't even imagine what that must have been like in that moment, having your sanity questioned and then threatened. Yeah. Yeah. Being lied to and manipulated by people I trusted. I'm still grappling with the the post-traumatic stress of that. Yeah. And it's definitely in in the today part of myself made me someone who actually I'm a very trusting person. I like to trust people. And of course, that's led me to have <laughs> occasional problems. <laughs> but I think the, the best way that this manifests itself is when I get the impression that someone is not being totally honest with me, I now react very strongly to that. Like I'm like, yeah, I bet. I'm like, you know, you do you, like you have your own life and and whatever. Like it doesn't matter to me. Just don't lie to me. Like it's yeah. fine. Like whatever it is, you you stole money or you, you know, whatever. You lied to me about something. Just don't lie to me. Like yeah. do whatever you're gonna do in your life. Just don't lie to my face because yeah. I cannot be made to feel crazy like I was put through in that experience. And I know that so many people that listen to this show have experienced gaslighting in a relationship form. Mm. And this is like that on steroids to go in with someone like an authority figure that's supposed to be like, A, taking care of your best interest, but B, upholding the fucking law. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up that comparison because yes, I feel like what I went through was super bad because here were people who were in an official position, who had official power over me and others, and they violated that trust. I do think that if I were lied to by my partner, someone I had chosen to be intimate with me and to Mm. have such an important place in my life, I don't know. There's no reason to compare things, but I feel like that would be worse because alongside alongside just the betrayal and like the mind fuck that is someone you trust lying to you, there's also the shame that you feel that you trusted them in the first place. Right, right, that you chose them, yeah. That's an extra layer. That's such an interesting comparison, yeah. There's a moment where Raffaele changed his story in the interrogation setting and was like, no, never mind, I wasn't with her that night. 
Do you think it's because of the gaslighting he was experiencing and the heaviness of the interrogation that he did that? Yeah. So he describes this in his book, Honor Bound. And it's such an important thing because I think a lot of people have given him a hard time for being the first one to break. Mm. The important issue, though, is that he broke. He was broken. He went through the exact same experience that I did. And what the police told him was, look, you know, you say you spent the night with this girl, but really, can you honestly say after you went to sleep that she didn't just wake up and walk out the door? And he was like, well, I was asleep. Like, obviously, if I'm unconscious, I can't right. say that I watched can't verify her. That. <laughs> I can't verify that. And they were like, well, great. You're going to sign a statement now to that effect. And then he signs a statement to that effect. And then they come to me and they say, Raphael, I changed his story and says you weren't there mm. with him. So it was not just him being put through an incredibly manipulative course of experience, but also the police misrepresenting his statement to me. Right. Oof. It really was like they created the narrative that they wanted to go off of and then did whatever they could to make that reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they did. They talked to us and communicated to us the thing that they thought would put us most in the hot seat and make us most willing to say whatever it is that they wanted us to say. And yeah. it became very clear over the course of my interrogation that they wanted me to say that I saw someone do this murder. Right. And when my cell phone records showed that I had been texting with my boss, Patrick, that night, they said, oh, it must be this Patrick guy. So Amanda, who did it? It was Patrick, yeah. right? Who's Patrick? What did you see? What did you see? Remember, remember. And when I couldn't remember, they got mad at me and they yelled at me and they hit me and I eventually broke. And this is all in a, in a language that you're not yeah. necessarily fluent and familiar with. Like, yeah. I can't even imagine how terrifying that must have been. Yeah. And, and here's the other like super critical, again, mental health thing is when we're in moments of crisis, yeah, I think it's almost instinctual to try to view what is happening to you in not the worst case scenario. So I was not sitting there thinking the police are lying to me and they're and they're abusing me. I was thinking, do they not understand me? And is this all my fault? Like right, I, I put right. on this like mantle of self-blame and I was like, is this all because I can't talk Italian good enough and they're mad yeah. at me because they don't understand me? Like my <sighs> mind was coming up with all these explanations for why this could be going wrong that was putting the blame on me and not on the person who was abusing their power towards me. Totally. Oh my God, what a mind fuck. So you go through the interrogation, you're now in prison in a foreign country, and your mom comes over to see you. What was that first meeting like with your mom? Because I, I can imagine putting myself in that scenario. That's the only thing I would want. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, where, where is my mom? I want my mom, yeah. So uh, fun, sort of not fun fact is... I think, and this is this is me speculating, but I think that the reason why the police brought both Raffaele and then me into interrogation 
that very night that they did and and broke us was because they had tapped my phone and were listening in to all of my phone calls and knew that my mom was scheduled to arrive in Italy the very next morning. Mm. And as it so happens, that was the case. I had been talking to my mom in these days since the the crime scene was discovered. And she, being the mom who is worried about everything, decided to come to Italy to support me. And so that final day of interrogation was also the final day that the police would have access to me without any kind of support or defense. Right. And like as they were interrogating me and as they were arresting me, my mom was calling me on my phone and they would not let me answer. And I kept telling them, if I don't answer the phone, my mom's going to think I've been murdered. Please let me answer the phone. And they would not. So they took me to prison and a few days went by and I was finally, first of all, formally charged. So they brought me in front of a judge who told me, you are under investigation for the murder of Meredith Kircher. How do you plea? And I was completely unprepared for that because, again, even in the midst of my interrogation, they never said, we're accusing you. They are saying, we think you witnessed this. And when they arrested me, they told me, they lied to me, we're taking you to a place for your protection. You'll see your mom in a few days. It'll only be a few days. But of course, 1,428 days later, I'm still in prison. Mm-hmm. So I, the next time I see my mom is a few days later in prison. And oh, to see someone who cared about me, who was actually there to help me, who I did not have to be afraid of, was the deepest relief. I felt like such a baby again. I mean, yeah. I was I was 20 years old and and I was still which is a, a baby, which is a baby. <laughs> but like even then, I just felt like I was a scared kid and I just wanted my mom. And yeah. we just held each other and cried for a while. And she was telling me like this whole thing is completely gotten out of control. I remember from the very beginning, my mom was super prescient. She was like, this isn't even about you anymore. This is like a huge international thing. And you're just suddenly in the middle of it and you have nothing to do with it. And it has nothing to do with you. It's way bigger than you. I remember her saying Mm. that it's way bigger than you. And we just have to basically wait for the adults in the room to figure that out and let you come home. And I felt like my first year, two years in prison, I and my family were just waiting for the adults in the room to figure it out. And we were just baffled that it kept taking so long. Yeah. Those first eight months in prison, I was in isolation. And every day I thought, they're doing the investigation. They're gathering evidence. They're going to figure out that I'm innocent. Like, is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it the right, next day? Like, right. it could have happened any day. And yet it still didn't happen. And yeah. instead, like, all of this crazy news was coming out about knives with DNA on them and, you know, crazy, kooky, homeless people who were saying they saw me on the night of the murder. Like, it was baffling to me. I thought that when they found the actual murderer, who they did, like they found the person who killed Meredith very early on. 
He was a known burglar. He had broken into other people's houses. He had threatened people with knives. He was known for being aggressive to women. He had they they had his fingerprints on file at the police office. Like they found out who he was very early on, and it made sense. And it made sense. Your, and you <laughs> and Raffaele did not make sense. And it's like, why are we hammering home the the option that makes no sense when we have someone that fits the bill in every other aspect? And and the why of that is because they arrested us first, right? So during your time in prison, your diary was leaked. Mm. What did that feel like to have something that was so personal and really something that was like the only thing that you had left in prison to be so publicly exploited? Yeah, that was that. I thought that I, at the very least, would have the ability to just be alone in my cell journaling my thoughts and it was in retrospect it's silly but I've always been a journaler you know like I I have a diary to this day and it never occurred to me that someone would come in and take it but also that then they would go and take little bits and pieces of my diary and and put them out in the media out of context to portray me as this like slut psychopath And they told me I had HIV and told me to think about who I had ever had sex with in my whole life to find out who had given it to me. And that's why I had a list of every person that I had ever had sex with in my whole life. And they put it out there as if I had in, you know, three weeks had sex with seven people. (laughs) Right. Which for the record, like people have, and that doesn't mean they're murderers. Right. The fact that you at the time had had sex with seven people your entire life, like I was like, oh, my God, if I would have been in her (laughs) shoes, like, fuck, I would have been really screwed. I would have been really pegged as a slut. Like, it's unbelievable. Let's dive into the them telling you that you had HIV. Sure. Can you explain to people what that was about, why they told you that and what the end game was? Yeah. So the first weeks that I was in prison, again, I was in isolation. I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody except for the prison staff. And there was one particular prison staff member who took a particular interest in me. His name was Vice Comandante Argiro. And he was a high-ranking prison official. He wasn't just some guard. He was like in the administrative staff. And he would, every evening, take me out of my cell and bring me into a private office uh, where he would interrogate me about my sex life. He wanted to know how I liked to have sex, what kind of things I liked to wear when I was having sex, if I would like to have sex with him. At first, when this was happening, I was so astonished that I thought, again, am I misunderstanding him? Do I not know what he's talking about? Mm. Am I misinterpreting what he's saying? But no, I was not. And I then proceeded to play dumb. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, sure you do. Sure you do. And I was like, no, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to talk to you about my sex life. I'm not going to like, that's not happening. And eventually he instead started accompanying me to the prison medic. So I would go in, the medic would, you know, take blood samples and hair samples, presumably for the investigation. And 
in the midst of this process informed me that they had tested my blood and that I had tested positive for HIV. And Arjiro, who was in the room with me, said, well, look at that. You should have thought about that before you had sex with all those people. You should think about who gave that to you. And I started immediately panicking. I was like, how did this happen? I thought I used protection with everyone that I had ever had sex with. And I went back into my room thinking I'm going to get AIDS and die in prison. So I sat there in my bunk crying, writing in my journal. And the next day, Arjiro came in with a, a few other guards and raided my cell and took every single scrap of paper that I had ever written on and confiscated it. And a few weeks later, it was leaked to the press. God, the helplessness that you must have felt in that moment, like not only was it like the only lifeline you had to be able to write in there, but your like private thoughts about that. And so they told you that you had HIV when they hadn't tested that and you did not, in no, fact. I did not. So they were telling you that to scare you into telling them all the people you had sex with? Yeah, my and again, this is me speculating, but mm -hmm. given the fact that in those weeks leading up to this event, I was being constantly interrogated by this guy, Arjuro, about my sex life, and I refused to talk to him, they came up with a more creative solution to get the information that they wanted. And that is why that happened. That's a despicable and devastating thing to do to another human being, to tell them that they have falsely tested positive for such a serious disease like that. But you know what? Like, if you think about it in their minds, they're thinking she's a fucking slut psychopath. Who cares what we tell her? Right. God, dude. Oh, my. It like makes my skin crawl. How long were you in prison before the first verdict was decided? I was in prison for two years and two months. Okay. So a long fucking time. And you go into court and they find you guilty, sentencing you to 26 years in prison. What went through your head when you realized like, oh, this is not going to be ending right now? Yeah, I thought I was going home that day. I thought the nightmare was coming to an end. You know, this like farcical narrative that had been put out there about me, I thought that that was going to be conclusively put to rest because we were finally, again, that sort of faith that the adults in the room are going to be reasonable. Everything that I thought I could count on disappeared in that moment. And yeah. Ultimately, what I was counting on was the truth. I was, I believed that the truth mattered and that people would base their decision making on the truth. And in that moment, I realized that the truth did not matter. It was the story that mattered, the story people were telling themselves. And I didn't matter. That's what I learned that day that I didn't matter, that I was just a character in someone else's morality play. And I was this like fiction that they had put together, this like Foxy Noxy character. They sentenced her, but it was me that was going in prison in her mm. place. Yeah. And again, like 
I feel like this it is such an extreme experience, but at the same time, I do feel like this is something that people can actually relate to. I don't want people to think that like they can't relate to me because I do think that in our lives, people are constantly misrepresenting us and judging us for things that we didn't do or have been taken out of context. And we are stuck living with the consequences of other people's perceptions of us. We feel trapped in other people's narratives about us. And as if there's a character of us that's in other people's minds that we have to be in conversation with just to interact with the world. Yeah. That's not unique to me. I just happened to live a very extreme experience of that where I was literally trapped in a jail cell because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Like on a more literal sense of it. I can't even imagine what you feel like walking through the story and the emotions of it because I feel heavy um, and it has nothing to do with me. It's it's a really weird feeling to feel the heaviness of someone else's story, even though you have nothing to do with it. What do you think from the trial or from prison left the biggest emotional scar on you? I mean, I think the the being lied to. I mean, it is a huge deal to feel like you don't matter and that people are just going to do what they will with you because they're telling themselves stories like that's a huge thing to to feel like you're not even a person to other people i do feel though that like the biggest lasting like ptsd impact was the being lied to by people i trusted cuz like here's the difference being turned into a character being forced to live with the consequences of that character, like being in a jail cell, facing prison time, losing the opportunity to have a life and a career and a family. Like all of that was gone for me when that guilty verdict came down. I, at the same time, still had this very, very clear sense that it wasn't about me, that like there was all of this hatred directed towards a person who didn't actually exist. And so I didn't feel like people hated me. They hated an idea of me. Mm. And they just didn't know the difference between their idea of me and the real me. So here I was sort of sitting in my jail cell, knowing that people hated and wanted to punish a person who didn't exist. And that was hard because here I was the one being punished and hated, but it wasn't me. So like even to this day, when I get like death threats from people online or people who call me a psychopath and a killer, like it doesn't land Mm. on me because it has nothing to do with me. Like I didn't actually do any of the things that they said I did. So their hatred of me is like totally just in their own brains. So in a way, there's this like nice disconnect where it's just like, wow, you know, I'm just sort of the object of someone else's psychosis. The difference between that and like being a human being in a relationship with somebody. So, you know, again, I was in an official relationship with those police officers who yelled at me and lied to me and manipulated to me. I didn't really have a choice about that relationship, but it was still a relationship. It was one in which in a crisis situation, I was trusting these people to protect me and they did the exact opposite. And Mm -hmm. that lasting impact has challenged me 
as I've then gone forward and developed new relationships with people because I'm extremely wary of being lied to. Yeah. It's a very different thing than the relationship that I have with people who hate a version of me that doesn't exist. Right. If that makes right. any sense. It makes total sense as, you know, because I've gotten obviously in a very different context, hate online from people. And I know that it's not about me. I yeah. know that, you know, it's their own perception, but that doesn't mean it doesn't like affect you. Oh yeah. So <laughs> to have it, to have it in like the, the capacity that you're describing, that's really intense to have people send death threats and call you a psychopath and a killer. And for you to know that that's not you, but to even hear those things when you didn't do anything to be deserving of this situation in the first place must be really frustrating. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because what it ultimately comes down to is you are trapped in someone else's narrative that's in their right. head. And because it is in their head, there's nothing you can do about that. Like, right. here I am living my life, you know, being my best self, doing the best I can with what I have. And, and you know, that's all we, any of us can ever do. And it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. to that person who has it in their brain that I'm a psychopathic killer, it doesn't matter what I do. I am forever in their brain a villain that they have righteous anger towards and they feel justified in projecting their hatred onto me. Yeah. It's hard as all hell because in the end, you are trapped in that person's narrative. I am trapped in that person's narrative. It has implications for how we can navigate the world because we're not just islands. We are all interdependent. And so the narratives that people say about us matter in our lives mm -hmm. in a very real way. But at the same time, like it's given me a really interesting glimpse into the human mind. On a daily basis, I am reminded that some people's strongest emotions are based on lies. Right. And lies that they're telling themselves, lies that other people have told them and they've just casually absorbed. And it makes me wonder like how many of us are navigating our world based upon feelings that arise in us because of false information. Yeah. And I think it says a lot about you as a human, as an individual, to be able to take a step back and have that perspective on it when it's something that so dramatically affects you personally. Well, you tell me if this is a similar thing that you felt. The thing that bothered me the most about this entire situation was the why question. Why did this happen to me? Why? Mm. It's like so right. fucking random. Like, why? Why did it happen to Meredith? Why did it happen to me? It came out of nowhere. Like, I was yeah. just being a young person going to school and then this happened. Why? And yeah. the only way to answer that why question is to have the courage to have compassion and genuine curiosity for the people who are harming you, because otherwise mm. you're never going to understand. And like for me, I needed to know why. And that mm -hmm. has led me down a path of genuine curiosity, which it kind of inevitably leads to compassion. Because if you, if you really see somebody and you recognize them, especially when they're making mistakes, 
it hurts me to see someone making a mistake because I feel like the vast majority of us out there are harming each other, not because we're psychopaths who like harming each other. It's because we feel justified or we feel like we're doing the right thing without realizing that we don't have all the information. And that is so painful. That's a source of immense suffering to like harm someone when your intentions are really good. So like I spend a lot of time thinking about how the people who harmed me convinced themselves that they were doing the right thing and what that means for them. Yeah. And I think a lot of times in many different situations in, you know, relationships where people are cheating, which is something that I experienced, like I wholeheartedly believe that my ex-husband convinced himself that what he was doing was okay and rationalized it in his head. Totally. So it's like two completely different scenarios, but it's the same through line of people who either genuinely believe they're doing the right thing or know they're doing something wrong, but are too far in that they now have to start convincing themselves that it's okay. Yep. And that's a scary place for someone to get to. And if you like really put yourself in his shoes, it's like, damn, I do not want to be you. I would rather be me than you. Yeah. (laughs) You're the one who's fucking up. (laughs) I'd rather be on the receiving end and dealing with it than like being so far gone that like you think what's going on in your brain right now is okay. Totally. Uh, Right? Do not want to be that guy. (laughs) Let's go. I'm like, we're we're way out of going back into this now. But (laughs) in the documentary, you talked about when you were in prison contemplating suicide. And we've talked a lot about that on this show. And the reasoning behind it that you mentioned, I found really fascinating that if you were thinking about being in prison until you were in your 50s and by the time you got home, people that you love and care about would not be here anymore. Mm -hmm. What do you think kept you from doing that? Because I feel like a lot of people in your shoes might have been like, this just isn't worth it. Yeah, no, and that's that's the really key thing is I've been very fortunate in my life to never struggle with something like suicidal ideation. It's interesting, my, my husband has, which mm. again, it's just like these sort of things arise in our lives without there even being a reason. I think that's what makes suicidal ideation so interesting is that for a lot of people, They just feel this compulsion, even though ultimately it's not like Anthony Bourdain killed himself and he had a people would look at him and say, like, wow, he had like the best life. You know, how he didn't have a reason. And it's like, well, right, that's not how suicidal ideation works. It's not about having a reason. And in fact, I think a lot of times the shame that comes from not having a good reason to feel suicidal is the thing that also leads you down the spiral of feeling suicidal. So I've been fortunate in my life that I have never had to struggle with suicidal ideation. My life growing up, I've always been like a really happy kid. My mom was like, you were the, e- <laughs> you were the easiest kid until you were the hardest <laughs> kid. <laughs> oh my God, my mom says the same thing. She's like, you were an angel and then you got to seventh grade and like everything went to shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and again, even like it, the whole thing was, it wasn't even like me making a problem. It was the world making a problem. So I was just mm-hmm. like, you know, I was, I was a good kid who was like really even keel, had good emotional stability. I've always had that in my life and I feel very fortunate for that. And 
when I was in prison and contemplating suicide, I feel like it, I was an unusual case because it didn't arise out of a suicidal like compulsion. It arose right. because I had a really good reason. Yeah. I was just like very rationally sitting there going, is this worth it? I yeah. don't know. I don't know. And ultimately, the worth it question is one that is very personal because whether or not your life is worth living, it doesn't really have to do with your circumstances. It has to do with how you respond to your circumstances. And I was yeah. very, very seriously contemplating, like, do I have it in me to make my life worth living under this set of circumstances? And every day I wasn't sure. I Every day I was like, I don't know big picture wise, do I see myself still doing this in five years, in 10 years, mm -hmm. in 20 years, in, right. you know, when I'm 50 years old, can I still be doing this? And I, yeah. I didn't know. And so I allowed myself the possibility. I even thought very seriously about how I would do it if I were one day decided that that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that that actually, oddly, was comforting to me because when you're trapped in your own life and you feel like there's nothing you can do and you're utterly helpless, it helps to acknowledge the ways that you aren't helpless. Yeah. And suicide, for better or for worse, is one of the ways that we are not helpless. We can right, make like you a, have choice. a choice. And I think that was where I'm sure that like suicidal hotlines would think this is a horrendous thing to say, but like I did find an odd amount of comfort at just the knowledge that that was a choice. Right. And I then having that choice in my mind was able to say, okay, I'm just going to put that choice up on this really high shelf in my brain. Right. And I right. just, I'm just going to know it's there. But in the meantime, I'm going to focus on today. I'm not mm. going to think about five years from now. I'm going to think about today. How can I make today and just today worth living? Yeah. Okay. I can do that. I can do today. I can do sit-ups and I can write a letter to my mom and I can read a book and that'll be enough for today. Mm. We'll rethink this through tomorrow. But today I got this. And I just kept doing that every day. Yeah. I think that's actually wildly inspirational um, for <laughs> anyone that's dealing with those thoughts to hear, not even in such an extreme situation, because I got to be honest, if I was in your shoes, like I probably would have had those thoughts too. And you're right. When you're trapped and locked up in that literal of a way, like you have to know like, okay, if I can't handle this at one point, at least I have a choice. Yeah. So I, I get that. Yeah. And I feel like there's no shame in that. And mm -hmm. maybe the mental health professionals will disagree with me and I will defer to them because I'm not a mental health professional. I just know what worked for me. And right. what worked for me was just allowing myself the thought. And what I yeah. realized was that that's actually a mindfulness practice. We talk about the sort of mental health ways that we, we grapple with things. And one of the things that I found was just allowing myself a thought without judging it, without saying that's the wrong thought to have, just allowing mm -hmm. myself to have a thought like, oh, if I were to kill myself, I would do it by doing X. That was a thought that I allowed myself to have without judgment. And then it sort of 
drifted. Like I allowed right. it to be there. I didn't try to suppress it. And I feel like if I had tried to suppress it, if I had judged that thought about myself, mm. I might have entered into that suicidal ideation whirlpool of like shame and self-judgment and that making things worse. And instead I was just like, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm just going to allow them to happen. And as a result, not feel attached to them. And that was sort of in, an intuitive mindfulness practice that I, I, I wasn't, you know, educated in mindfulness and meditation, but that's one of the things that is taught is just sit down and let your thoughts happen and notice them. Notice yeah, them without not Acknowledge them. Yep. Yeah, totally. Oh, there was so much goodness in there. So the media played a massive role in this case and kind of how you were portrayed and things that were happening would never fly in today's climate, like the exploiting your sex life, saying that you were some crazy slut because you had slept with seven people. Like, it was just insane. How do you feel that the media used your sexuality against you in this particular case? Yeah, it's it's amazing how things can change in not that much time. This is 2007, so we're not talking a million years ago. Right. But uh, yeah, I think they did the age old practice of vilifying the whore. Yeah. So taking women's sexuality and portraying it in the worst possible light and equating female sexuality with depravity and the capacity for violence. I don't know. I'm just, I'm preaching to the choir. We all know it's done. We see it happen a million times. But if you want to attack a woman, you attack her sexuality. It's just that mm -hmm. simple. Yeah. Suddenly because she becomes less than. It's so fascinating because in our society, we also are, we obsessively objectify women constantly and we're sexualizing mm -hmm. them constantly. But we can use that platform and use it to crush a woman as long as we are presenting her as someone who is depraved and unnatural for having a yeah, sex life. Totally. It's kind of a boring answer in the sense that it's like, no, okay, it's been it's... done a million times before, but they just did. They gave me the age old vilifier for sexuality treatment and turned me into Foxy Noxy and endlessly speculated about what my sex life was really like and whether or not I was a dominatrix and had really just disgusting conversations on open broadcast where people were like, would you or would you not have sex with Foxy right, Noxy? Right. And it's just like, if anything, what it showed to me is that it wasn't just that people were projecting their fears onto me, but they were also projecting their fantasies. And right. because those things were interwoven, it was so, it was just so easy to sell as a product yeah. by the media. It just, yeah. it hit all of people's primal buttons in just the right way that they kept wanting more. It was candy. It was a drug <laughs> that they were selling yeah, people. Yeah, which yeah. Yeah, they were literally yeah. creating a character for people to, to witness and vilify, which is crazy to look back on the steps of how that happened. In the documentary, the the UK journalist Nick Pisa, I think uh, his yes. name is. He doesn't come across very well, does he? <laughs> so he he literally states, you know, that looking back on what was printed, so much of the information that was printed was completely crazy and made up. How does it feel after having so many years of your life taken away? Do you feel like you harbor anger 
and mm-hmm. resentment towards the journalists that put false information out there or the prosecutors that were creating these narratives about you. Do you feel like there's been forgiveness there or is it something that you still feel like you're owed something for? Oh, well, (laughs) those are two different questions. But yes, again, I look at those situations and I ask why, because it's the same problem, right? It's an authority that had power that abused its power. And it was an authority figure that I trusted, like the media is this authority Mm -hmm. that I trusted to care about the truth. And lo and behold, it turned out that they did not care about the truth. They cared about the bottom line. They cared about selling a story and getting on. And individual journalists were caring more about their careers and getting on front pages than they cared about the content of their journalism. And when it ultimately comes back to that question of why, why, why would somebody who like is building their entire career around journalism, which at its best, is a very, very ethical, important product to provide to the world. Why are they selling people bullshit? And I think that on the one hand, you you can look at the individual actors and go, that's a bad apple. But I think the bigger question is, how is it systemic? How Mm. are people turned into the kind of people who would put out made up information for the sake of getting on the front page. And if you ultimately like look at it from that perspective, like I look at a Nick Pisa and I think like, man, he's just another human being who's screwing up because everyone's patting him on the back and paying him and rewarding him for doing it. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, that doesn't, you know, acquit him. That doesn't, you know, mean that he's not, ultimately responsible for his actions, but it also means that he himself has a context. And Mm -hmm. if we actually want to address, like, if we want to prevent this same thing from happening again, we don't just go after Nick Pisa. We go after the system and we ask ourselves, how are we participating in it? Like, how are we incentivizing people to sell us lies instead of the Mm -hmm. truth? It also made me think about like the number of people out there who just read a story about me and decided to hate me for it. Like Mm -hmm. it makes me have compassion for them, too, because they were lied to. They were lied to by an authority figure just like me. It's so inspiring to hear your perspective on uh, you know, what would cause so many people to have hate in their hearts. And instead of choosing hate, you chose compassion. And I really seriously commend you for that. And it's really amazing to watch. So to wrap up, do you feel like there's any silver lining anywhere in what happened to you? For me, obviously, again, vastly different experiences, but with everything that I've gone through in my life, I can look at all those things and say, yes, this sucked and it was awful, but this is what you know, I gained from it or learned from it or it changed my me mm. as a person. Is there any silver lining in all of what happened for you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because one, I'm I'm sitting here with this perspective today and I don't know if I would have this perspective today if I hadn't been really pushed to the edge and and really given such deep insight on a regular basis to like, 
the fallibility and the fragility of the human mind and in our and our society. So I really, really uh, appreciate that because I feel like it makes me a better person and mm. makes me less likely to do that kind of casual harm that we do to each other all the time. doesn't make me immune. Obviously, I'm still a human being, but like I'm reminded more on a daily basis about how we can all fall into these traps and harm each other in the process. Um, It's definitely given me a sense of purpose that I don't know if I would otherwise have. But at the same time, you know, I feel like I'm only very recently realizing that like when something happens to us, one of the things that's been really hard for me is I feel like I've been defined in a big way by something that happened to me. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I did. It wasn't something that I made or created. It's something that just happened to me. And so it, in a way, I feel very disassociated from it. It could have happened Mm -hmm. to anybody. There's nothing special about me. I just happened to be there when it happened and then it happened to me. But I, I'm instead learning to reframe that because it, that itself can feel like a trap. Like the biggest yeah. and most important thing about your life is not something that you even did. That's right. kind of sad. It's been a, a source of sadness for me. And instead, I am learning to reframe it as this thing happened to me, but also what happened for me? Mm. What have I taken from this experience because I'm the kind of person who would have reacted to it in a very specific way. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm I'm grateful that like when push came to shove, I turned out to be not somebody who got bitter and resentful and vengeful. It's a nice yeah. thing to know for, about myself because like I have every reason to be a bitter, resentful, Seriously. angry person and I'm not. And I'm like, whoo, Thank goodness, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's really it's really a, incredible and a testament to you. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media? And I know you have a podcast that I've started to get into. So can you tell everyone where they can check that out? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm putting all of this thought into practice in my podcast, Labyrinths, that I host and produce with my husband, Chris. You can find me on social media at Amanda Knox on Twitter and at Amama Knox on Instagram. Um, You can also find all of my work at KnoxRobinson.com. Amazing. Amanda, I can't thank you enough for your vulnerability and for going through this story yet again. I I can't imagine it's easy. So I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for, for sharing with me and having fun with me. I want to genuinely and truly thank Amanda so much for coming on and being so open with me and so vulnerable. When I first messaged her, I had no idea if she would be willing to come on and rehash everything that she's moved on from. But to me, the most inspiring part of this whole interview was hearing her not place blame on people and not hold hate in her heart for people who literally took years and years of her life away. To not hold on to that is really what I talk about so much day in and day out to all of my followers and listeners is forgiveness. And that's a hard fucking pill to forgive. I don't know if I went through that situation the way that she did. Really, if I would be able to not feel anger and not place blame on all of the people that really 
fumbled the ball so fucking badly in this case. And keep in mind that this all concluded 10 years ago, a decade ago. And there were many times when she was recounting certain parts of this story where you saw her get wildly emotional. And I can't even imagine having four years, and really it's been more, four years in prison, but so many years of your life taken from you just because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And even though it's been a decade, she never gets to put that part of her life away. There will always be people sending her threatening messages. There will always be people looking at her sideways. She will always be questioned because of the way the media portrayed this case. She never gets to just fully shed that. And to hear her express that she can see the silver lining in all of it and that she can forgive through all of it is truly a huge feat. I was so beyond impressed and inspired by her outlook on what she went through. And I am so incredibly grateful that she decided to come on and really dig in with me on today's show. We might not be able to relate to what she went through and the wild circumstances. We can all relate to going through some fucked up shit and needing to forgive and let go and find the silver lining in it. So if nothing else, I hope that this interview left you with some of that inspiration today. All right, FMLers, if you don't want to miss an episode, make sure to follow on your favorite podcast app. And if you're loving the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a review. You can keep up with me on Instagram at Gabrielle Stone or the podcast page at FML Talk Podcast. For all the merch and books signed personally by me, you can shop the FML line on eatprayfml.com. And as always, have a fucking self-love cocktail on me. Cheers. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a fertility physician and co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. We will talk about a wide range of topics, including the menstrual cycle, your hormones, infertility, IVF, mental health, and well, beyond. So join us and become part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. This podcast has been brought to you by Podcast Nation.